The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Uh, with that, just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been with us, we are going through the book of Acts, the history of the church. We started in chapter 1, and we're going story at a time or section at a time. We are now in Acts chapter 9, so that's where we're going to be looking today. We took a little break uh, as we had a missions trip to India. So we'll pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. And to uh, remind us of where we were, uh, the early church started in the city of Jerusalem after Jesus went back into heaven. God sent his Holy Spirit to come upon those first 120 believers. They started the church. They were headed by the 12 apostles who functioned as the first elders of the church in Jerusalem. They faithfully preached the gospel, filling the entire city of Jerusalem with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God was gracious, softened hearts. Many responded in Many believers joined the church in the city of Jerusalem. So the church exploded, that first church. It became a megachurch instantly as it numbered in the thousands. And then the church began to spread beyond the city of Jerusalem in all of Judea and then even into closer regions and countries like Samaria. And then we saw it spread even beyond Samaria because Jesus' goal was spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. And so... We saw how it was going down even into past Egypt to Ethiopia, where we saw an Ethiopian eunuch get saved, and also then going up north uh, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And we pick up where the Apostle Paul was actually first Saul. Saul was his name. He's a young man, influential in the circles, being trained and groomed by the Sadducees and Pharisees of Jerusalem who were actually the avowed enemies of Jesus Christ and Christianity. They were trying to snuff out Christianity just as it began. And they raised up Saul, who had many gifts, they thought, that they could use and wield in their behalf of shutting down Christianity. For this young Saul was incredibly passionate for the Jewish faith. He was not born again yet, and yet, and he was also trained in their schools as a young rabbi and had a unique personality, uh, amazing single-mindedness, courage, and he began to rise in terms of prominence and even authority at the same time that the church began to grow in Jerusalem. And Saul became an enemy of Jesus Christ and Christianity, and they used him, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, uh, to be an to instigate a persecution formally against the early church, and that's what Saul did. He began persecuting literally the church, violently and viciously so. As a young man, we don't know how old he was. It just said a young man. Could have been maybe in his early 20s. Maybe that's why he wasn't an original member of the Sanhedrin at the time of Christ, but as he was rising in prominence at this time and became very vi a violent aggressor against the church, chasing Christians down in the highways and the byways and the streets of Jerusalem and surrounding areas, pulling them out of their homes, pulling women away from their babies and children, literally having them arrested and thrown into prison, beating them physically. And some of these were even being murdered just for being Christians, just for talking about Jesus. They despised that name. If you recall, in chapter 7, Stephen, a Christian, was giving his testimony. He was rebuking the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and those who rejected Christ. And his culmination was when he started to talk about Jesus. And when he mentioned the name of Jesus in front of the Sanhedrin, it says they literally covered their ears. 
as they got out of their tribunal seats to put their hands around the neck of Stephen as they dragged him out of the courtroom, dragged him out of the city, and pummeled him to death with stones. And it said this young Saul was standing there witnessing the whole thing, approving it all. And from that point on, Saul became the spearhead of the persecution against the early church. And he was viciously violent, even responsible for the murder, the death of many Christians. It was so bad that it scared all, I mean, all the Christians, the majority of Christians fled Jerusalem. Only the apostles and a few others remained behind. And Saul was the number one perpetrator of this mass persecution against the early church. Many followed his lead, and he wasn't sufficient. When he, I guess, ran out of Christians that he could torture, kill, and imprison in Jerusalem, he started going in cities beyond and vicinities beyond, and that's where we get to chapter 9. And we talked about that last time where Saul, uh, Saul, verse 1, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Damascus was about 140 miles north in Syria, just past the border of Palestine or Israel there. And Saul was going to go up to the city of Damascus, Damascus being one of the oldest cities in the world. And there, it was a significant city, prestigious city, uh, an international city of sorts, influential city, but it was also a bastion of protection and safety for uh, many of these Christians who fled to Damascus. And so Paul or Saul obviously got word that there were Christians hiding in Damascus. And when he heard about it, he was enraged. We need to stamp this religion out. And so that was his goal. So he actually got permission from the Sanhedrin, the council, the high priest, to get needed papers to go up to Damascus, 140 miles, and he's got an entourage with him to go and hunt down Christians in the city of Damascus. The city of Damascus still exists today. The original wall that they think was built around the city of Damascus that's thousands of years old, you can go and visit that wall today, and it's still intact. The last sermon we saw that the main thoroughfare of the main street is still there to this day. It's amazing. This is a historical account. And so that's where Saul went, and so he was on his way, heading up there with his henchmen to hunt down Christians. And it says at about noontime, about lunchtime, as he was approaching the city, so he had traveled most of the 140 miles and approaching the city and no doubt seeing the wall and the sun is at uh, mid-sky because it's 12 o'clock noon, and all of a sudden a bright light from heaven, brighter than the sun, instantly flashed all around Saul, it says. He was enveloped in this supernatural heavenly light, brighter than the sun, as were all of his partners that were with him. He was thrown to the ground. All of his partners were instantly thrown to the ground, and he heard a voice, and all of his partners heard a noise from heaven. And it was the Lord Jesus Christ confronting Saul. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul knew it was of the Creator. He knew it was of God, but he didn't know God's name specifically, so he asked, Who are you, Lord? And and Jesus spoke from heaven and said, I am Jesus. What a confrontation. That was the name that Saul hated and despised, that he covered his ears hearing that name, Jesus. That's why he was killing his Christians, because they believed in Jesus. 
And now the very one that he wants to stamp out is confronting him personally to the face. I am Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? And that was the moment probably that Saul became Paul and was born again and got saved. He was personally confronted by the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a very unique way. Uh, And then Jesus told him to get up off the ground. He instantly went blind. And his partners took him the rest of the way into the city of Damascus. He was taken to a specific house by name according to Jesus' plan. And then providentially and graciously, God sent a very godly man to take care of Saul. And Saul was blind for three days. He did not eat for three days. He was praying fervently for three days. He was praying not just to Yahweh. He was praying to his new personal Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, for three days. Just a life-changing experience. And then after those three days, it says that God graciously removed the scales that were over his eyes, literally scales like fish scales fell off of his eyes, and he could see. That literally happened, but was also reflective of what happened in his heart. The scales of unbelief were taken away from his heart so that now he could also see spiritually. He knew Jesus Christ for who he truly was. He was indeed the Messiah, this Messiah of the Old Testament that that Saul had studied for 20 years. The coming of the Messiah, according to the Old Testament scriptures. And so now, and also Ananias lays his hands on Saul and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now the Spirit of God has come to live inside Saul. And so from every respect and every sense of the word, Saul is now a new man. Changed from the inside out by the Lord Jesus Christ through salvation. This is what we call regeneration or being born again or being saved, being justified, being made new, being adopted into the family of God, receiving eternal life, being indwelt with the spirit of God, now being a friend of God and no longer an enemy of God. No longer in the household of Satan, but in the household of the Father and the Son. So Saul indeed is now a new man. Keep in mind the mission that Saul had as he is going 140 miles with one focus, one dirty deed to perform, and that is to find as many Christians as I can, arrest them, drag them back to Jerusalem where they can be tried, imprisoned, and maybe even executed for their faith in Jesus Christ. That was his mission. That was his purpose. That's why he went to Damascus. But then God changed him. God saved him. And so now he's in Damascus, which was his goal. But he's a new man. He's totally changed. He's a new creature. So what is he to do now that he's there? And so that's where we're going to pick up here. So go ahead and look at Acts chapter 9 and see what happens as a result now that he has been changed. The title of the sermon today is Jesus Changes People. Jesus Changes People. That is the clear testimony of the New Testament the ministry of Jesus, the writing of the apostles. I want to be changed. People throughout history want to be changed. People are desiring to be changed today all over, all around us. They don't like themselves. They want something more. They want something new. They want to get rid of bad habits, old habits. Uh, And I'm not just talking about Christians. I'm talking about everybody. Seeking transformation, regeneration, becoming new. And they'll pursue all kinds of different avenues and processes to try and attempt to change, to bring significant change in their life. It could be philosophical. It can be religious. It can be practical. Uh, it could be 
going on a diet to change. It can be reading uh, information, listening to motivational speakers, making new commitments, making uh, new goals and plans, changing new friends, uh, getting surgery to change your looks, a new identity, uh, adopting a new philosophy, a new mantra, meditation, a new religion. People are constantly looking for something that can truly help them change. But the testimony of Scripture is that there's only one thing that can really bring significant change. Uh, a human being cannot really change themselves in terms of who they really are. That is impossible. Jeremiah, the prophet, wrote that five, six hundred years before Christ in Scripture, Holy Scripture, and was making the point that human beings in and of themselves can't change themselves. It is futile. It is impossible. We are only natural. It takes something supernatural to change. And so Jeremiah, the prophet, asks a rhetorical question. Can the leper change his spots? No. It's of his nature. He can't change his spots. Can the Ethiopian change the dark-colored skin that he has? No, can't. And so also it is true that a man or a woman left to themselves cannot change themselves. They can't change their very nature. But our nature can change, but it only happens through one way and through one means, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ, it's God the Father, and it is through the power of the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so uh, let's go ahead and look at our handout here. I came up with just four points just to try to summarize this narrative and this story of the radical change that takes place in the life of Saul. Saul, the former Christian killer, the one who despised Christianity, who hated the name of Jesus, considering himself in 1 Timothy 1 the worst sinner that ever existed. The epitome of a sinner now becoming a glorious saint. It's the greatest kind of change conceivable. And so that's what God did in Saul's life. It's very exciting. It's very encouraging. And God still changes people today. I want to read just kind of a theme verse to kick this off. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Many of you are familiar with this. This is the Apostle Paul now. Saul became Paul. He changed his name. Saul was his Hebrew name, his birth name, second king of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. He was named Saul. There was much Old Testament Jewish meaning to the significance of that name. But when he became a Christian, he changed his name when he went on the missions field to Paul. That was the Greek name. Now he's going to be working with Greeks primarily to Gentiles and wanted to relate to them better. So it was a practical change, very appropriate, and also symbolizing really God had changed him and made him a new man. He is no longer Saul, the Christian killer. He now becomes Paul, the servant, the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, who now loves the people of God. And he was changed radically. And so he's writing Second Corinthians, and he talks about this supernatural change that he himself experienced. This isn't just theoretical theology. This is a personal experience and reality he had in his life that was also true of these pathetic, rebellious, sinful, compromising Corinthian Christians. If they were born again, this was also true of them. If you're a Christian today, this is true of you. This is your biography. This is exciting. Second Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anybody is a Christian, if anyone is truly born again, if anybody has actually embraced the gospel, then that means you got saved. God put his Holy Spirit to live in you. If, if anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creature, a new creation. The old things have passed away. What are the old things? Because sometimes we think as a Christian, well, I still got these bad, nasty habits and I just can't shake them. Well, that's 
as a result of your sin nature, you're not going to shake that in this life. That's not what he's talking about. Well, then what has passed away? Well, on the inside, God has made you a new person. In terms of your nature, your mind, your desires, how you think, your loyalties, your love, your affection, your goals, how you perceive the world. And that all flows out primarily of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and lives in me. So that's what's new. Is You have a new worldview. You look at everything totally differently now, like Saul. I, don't, I look at Christians. I don't hate Christians. I love Christians. That was his attitude that changed. That's an inside change. That's a supernatural work wrought by God himself. So that's what he's referring to about this inner change. doesn't mean he's going to... He doesn't eradicate sin in his lifetime. But he gives us resources to resist that sin. Therefore, if anybody's a Christian, if anybody's in Christ, they are new creatures. The old things have passed away. Old allegiances, old idolatry, old self-centeredness. And now for the first time, we can worship God in a pure way, a direct way, a way that pleases God, that's beautiful to Him. You know that verse, famous verse in Isaiah where it says, all your good works are like filthy rags to God. Did you know that doesn't apply to a Christian? That's encouraging. According to Ephesians 2.10, we can actually do good works that please God. That is awesome. That's also part of the change. So now we do good deeds not to get saved. We do good deeds because we are saved. That is also a change. And probably the greatest change of all that happens in light of this verse, that if anybody's in Christ, they're a new creation, old things have passed away, is our status before Almighty God. He looks down at us and He sees Christ. He doesn't see us, the sinner. He has forgiven us of all of our sins. He has justified us. He is the judge of the earth. And He says, you are not just not guilty, you are innocent. Innocent and pristine is the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. What a change. Our status before God has changed. All things have passed away, and behold, new things have come. Let's go ahead and look at these new things about this former killer named Saul who becomes Paul in Acts chapter 9, looking at point number 1, verses 19 to actually 22. We'll go there. That is the purpose for this change. Jesus changed him, but for what purpose did God or Jesus change Saul? Saul, probably the most influential rising star in the realm of those who opposed Christ at the time, radically changed. And there was a very definitive and specific purpose that God stated of why he saved Paul and changed Paul. When he got saved, Jesus said why he saved Saul in Acts chapter 9, verse 15. The Lord, that's Jesus, talking to Ananias, said, go, for he, this Saul, whom I am changing and saving. He is a chosen instrument of mine. That was the purpose for Saul. He was going to be a very specific chosen instrument. He was unique. He was distinct. There are no apostle Pauls today in terms of apostles who received direct revelation, who saw the face of God, who were caught up into the third heaven, who wrote uh, authoritative New Testament epistles. This man was unique. He is a chosen vessel of mine. That was his purpose, a chosen instrument of mine, he will bear my name before the Gentiles. That's what he's going to do. Paul and the other apostles, they're primarily ministering to Jews and, I mean, sorry, uh, Peter and the other apostles, but Paul will be unique. He will unique, uh, uniquely minister to the Gentiles and plant churches where no one has ever gone before. So he's going to have a unique ministry and a unique calling and a unique mission as an apostle. And also the Lord Jesus Christ was going to give Saul or Paul 
a unique divine revelation that no one had ever heard of or seen before. He's going to, Jesus was going to give Paul information the 12 apostles had never heard in the three years they were with Jesus. It's amazing. And that's, and Paul called these mysteries, musterion that he uses about 10 times in his, his epistles. Here's a mystery I got from Jesus. It's new information that Peter and the other apostles didn't get. So he was unique. Chosen vessel. He is going to minister specifically to the Gentiles first and foremost. That is his calling. So that was the unique purpose, but um, there's also a general purpose that applies to all of us who have been changed. So point number one, the purpose for change for any Christian, and that is service to Christ or serving Christ. That's why we are called. That's why we're saved. That's why we're born. So if you need a purpose in life, why am I here? Why do I exist? Well, if you are a Christian, the answer to that is very clear. God allowed you to be born where you were born, when you were born, so that he might be gracious to you, draw you to himself, save you, change you, make you new in Christ, and now he wants to use you as an instrument of his grace to the rest of the world. And we are to be faithful stewards of that all of our days. That is basic to Christianity. So we have a purpose. We have a very clear definitive purpose to live for. This sets us apart from the rest of the world. The rest of the world, people who are not Christians, they are looking for, vying for a purpose to live. They are. It's all over the place. Some of them are pretty kooky and crazy purposes. Some of, them, some of them are philanthropic, or they're, they're good. They give money. They want to start uh, schools for children in deprived countries or inner city. That's a good thing. And for some people, that becomes their cause and their sole purpose, and that's how they think they're being used by God. That is not the ultimate purpose for a Christian. It is first and foremost to be the witnesses of Jesus Christ, as he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So the purpose of change uh, for Saul here is that he might serve Christ and for him in a very unique way. Let's look at verses 19 and following. So after three days, his eyes were opened up literally and also spiritually. He regained his sight. He got up and he was baptized immediately. If you are a Christian, you should be baptized. That's the pattern of the New Testament, the book of Acts. That was the first step of obedience. I get saved. I make a profession. I believe in the gospel. Then I get baptized. And I gave an invitation a month ago. So I give it again. We're going to have a baptism coming up. Some of you actually responded. If you are a Christian, you haven't been baptized, and you haven't talked to me yet, and you come to this church regularly, you need to get baptized. It's just out of obedience to Jesus Christ to be a witness, and you will be blessed as a result. Do you want all of God's blessings you can possibly have in your life as a Christian? I do. Well, a simple one is to do baptism. And that is exactly what Saul did. He got baptized. We don't know who was there, if it was public or whatever. I will tell you this, that as Saul was heading to Damascus, a word I guarantee got out that Saul the Christian killer is coming to town in Damascus. So you can imagine the fear that the disciples of Christ had in Damascus. Where will we hide? Do we run further north? Here he comes. He is vicious. He is brutal. I wonder if the word got out that he got baptized. Maybe it did. A lot of their baptisms were public. They have rivers nearby in Damascus. Could be that it got out, that he did it publicly. We, we see that there were disciples in Damascus that immediately received Saul. They weren't hesitant. They, they embraced him immediately. Contrast that a little later. He goes to Jerusalem and the disciples there, they want nothing to do with Saul because they think he's lying. We're not letting him into our prayer meeting. He's a Christian killer. He is lying. He's faking it. He wants to say he's a Christian so he can get in and take advantage of us. They did not believe him. The believers in Damascus, they believed him. Just wondering. I wonder if that had to do with his te testimony of baptism. 
Then he took some food after three days, and he was strengthened. Now he's back to that same powerful, single-minded, courageous, bold, highly educated, sharp-minded, peerless Saul. But with a significant change, he is now a lover of Jesus. And thus his ministry begins. Verse 19, and he took food and was strengthened. And now for several days, several days, we don't know how long, but for several days, he was with the disciples. He, he was with the believers. He was with the Christians. He, he gets saved radically, and now he is a fellow disciple, and the disciples apparently embrace him because it says he was with the disciples, the Christians. They're hiding out in Damascus, now have an ally and friend in Paul, who is now an apostle. So he's with the disciples who were in Damascus. What a radical change. Verse 20, and immediately, immediately, Paul began to preach. Immediately he be, So he didn't have to go to seminary for three, four, five, seven years? Apparently not. It says immediately. He gets saved. He eats some food. He gets his strengths. He hangs out with the disciples. And now he's immediately on an ongoing basis proclaiming publicly, out loud, in the synagogues that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, wow, how come he didn't need to get trained? Well, he was trained. He was probably the most diligent, articulated, uh, articulate, educated Jew in the Old Testament scriptures in his day for his age. He had the greatest Jewish teacher alive at the time, Gamaliel. Who knows how much of the Old Testament he actually had memorized. Maybe he had most of the Old Testament memorized literally. And when he became a Christian, the light went on. Boom. Jehovah. Yahweh of the Old Testament is Jesus the Lord. And all those prophecies that he memorized and thought and was looking forward to are now fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So he was trained in that respect. Not only that, he was getting immediately from day one divine, unique revelations from Jesus Christ from heaven. And he knew enough. He knew the gospel. That's what he's proclaiming. He's going out. He's speaking boldly. He is proclaiming everywhere he goes. What is he proclaiming? Verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus. You know what? That is our purpose too. That is the purpose. Paul got saved primarily to preach Jesus Christ. Acts 1, 8. And that is the main purpose or one of the main purposes God calls us and saves us as Christians to proclaim Jesus. That's what we should be doing as a Christian. Think about it. When was the last time you were able to tell an unbeliever about Jesus? Just even a little bit. I'll say it again. When was the last time you could consciously think of talking to an unbeliever about Jesus? Whether it's a coworker, your neighbor, a family member. That's what we are called to do. Witnesses for him. That's purpose number one. Representing him. And that's what he did. He is out proclaiming. He is out proclaiming. Verse 15, Jesus said, I want him to bear my name. That means preach, proclaim, not just live out. You don't live out the gospel. Did you know that? You don't live out the gospel. You preach the gospel. You believe the gospel, you preach the gospel, you're saved by the gospel. We don't live the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the good news. And that's what he did. Proclaiming. And all the words regarding Paul throughout the book of Acts, and there are many of his preaching, he preached Jesus, he proclaimed Jesus, he evangelized Jesus. Uh, there are many different verbs, Greek verbs, of how he did it, and they all have to do with verbal, outward-spoken articulation. He was called to be a preacher. That's what he says in Timothy. God called me to be a preacher and a teacher. That's what he did. So it was verbal proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And immediately he began to proclaim. He was a preacher. He was um, 
a pastor, an apostle, a church planter, an evangelist, who is all of these things, and a proclaimer of Christ. Immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Okay, so he's not just uh, talking to those around him that are his friends. He actually goes into uh, the lion's den. He's going into the synagogue. He go, This is amazing. Verse 20. Immediately began to proclaim Jesus where? In the synagogues. You know what? The synagogues, there were several synagogues in Damascus. They were Jewish synagogues. They were not headed up by Christians. For the most part, they were unbelieving Jews who were in sync with the unbelieving Jews who ran the synagogues in Jerusalem. The synagogues in Damascus were the ones who were coordinating with Jerusalem, the high priest Caiaphas, Annas, and arranged for Paul to come up to the synagogues in Damascus. These are unbelieving Jews. These are hostile Jews. These are Greek-speaking Jews who despise and hate Christianity as well. These are Jews in the synagogues who approved of the death of Stephen and the death and execution of many Christians. These are the same Jews in these synagogues in Damascus. That's where Paul goes. And up to this point, these Jews who ran those synagogues knew Saul was coming. He's coming as their invited guest. He's coming as an esteemed incomparable one to represent their viewpoint that was anti-Christ. They put him on the guest speaker rotation, probably sent out the bulletin and promoted it and told everybody, Saul the Christian killer is coming to town and we're going to give him the floor when he gets here. And he does. He comes. He keeps his invitation. And he comes into these synagogues. And they let him preach and speak. And they think he is going to condemn Jesus Christ. He opens up his mouth and says, Jesus is the Messiah. Can you imagine what they did? It says right here. They were in awe. They freaked out. That's what it means. They weren't happy. Proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues. These were Hellenistic, unbelieving Jews. And what was his message? Well, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue. So Jesus was his message and specifically. Well, what about Jesus? You've got to be specific when you're talking about Jesus. You can't just say, believe in Jesus and you'll be saved. Well, that's true, but you've got to know who Jesus is. It's not, Jesus is not a created being. He's not a sub-God. He's not just a good man. He's not just the greatest prophet there ever was or the greatest man there ever was or the greatest social worker there ever was or the greatest teacher there ever was or the greatest rabbi he is more than that and so that's why it gets explicit in verse 20 he was preaching something specific about jesus what was saul saying jesus was saying that G, uh, paul was saying that jesus was the son of god that is a summary state that's probably the most controversial summary statement you can make about jesus's identity to an audience of jews the, the holy book of the Jews was the Old Testament. The phrase, the Son of God, is almost absent in the Old Testament. Did you know that? It is very, very rare. Adam is called a Son of God. Son of God means you have the same nature of, or there is a direct relation to your parent. And in the Old Testament, Adam is called a Son of God because he is the only one who was not born of woman. Or taken from another human being. He originated directly from the hand of God. And that's why that was reserved in a special and unique way for Adam. But he isn't called the son of God. He's called a son of God. Angels at times, very rarely, were called sons of God. Why? Well, they weren't born of human. They weren't born. Angels were created directly from the hand of God. 
And then there are a few places, Psalm 2 and others, where a coming Messiah was referred to as the Son of the Most High. In other words, a Son of God. The Jews knew that. They knew it was unique and special. And this was uh, someone like no other in the history of the world that was going to be born who was called the Son of God. And he was the Messiah. So in Mark chapter 14, verse 16, and the other two of the other synoptic gospels, the high priest refers to the unique Son of God in reference to the Messiah. Only the Messiah was the definite article, the Son of God. And that's what uh, Saul says here. Jesus is not just a Son of God, one of many, because in Galatians, Christians are called sons of God, children of God. We are not called the Son of God. Not definite article. We are children of God. And we are children of God by adoption. That is very different. The Son of God was a specific designation of the one and only unique Messiah that actually shared its very nature with God Almighty Yahweh Himself. An incarnation of deity, if you will. Or at least a unique relationship with God Himself. That's why this this term is so rare in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament. Jesus didn't use this regularly of himself. He usually called himself the son of man, son of man, son of man. But occasionally he would say he was the son of God and he would say it to specific audiences and usually with the leadership of the Jews. So that in John chapter 10, near the end of his life, he is teaching publicly in the temples during a holiday and the leadership there, the Jewish leadership, became infuriated with Jesus, and they accused him of blasphemy. How dare you make yourself equal with God? Well, how did Jesus do that? Well, Jesus responded. He said, so are you saying I blaspheme because I say I am the Son of God? So in the mind of the Jews, to call yourself the Son of God, which Jesus did, was the equivalent of saying, I am directly related to God, Yahweh. I share the same nature with Yahweh. I am the unique Messiah like no other. And they accused him of blasphemy and said he was claiming to be equal with God, and they took up stones to stone him. So you can imagine, here's Saul supposed to come in and say, I hate Jesus, let's kill Christians. Yay! And instead he says, He proclaims the glories, the excellencies of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he saved. And he is the Savior, the only Savior. He is Messiah indeed. He is the Son of God. This is the same thing that got Stephen executed on the spot. The same message. Jesus is the Son of God. So to summarize it for you, according to the Gospel of John, the phrase the Son of God can be most clearly distilled down to saying that Jesus is eternal God. He is deity. He is equal to the Father. He is eternal. He is uncreated. He is the judge. He is God. That's what it means. Here's the reaction, verse 21. All those hearing him, they continue to be amazed. These are the Jews in the synagogue. Amazed. They are not happy. They are confused. They are shocked. They are surprised. Let's unplug his microphone. Who is this guy? What in the world is going on? And they were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed, wiped out, Those who called on this name, they can't even say it. They can't bring themselves to say Jesus, which is just like the Jews who hated him in Jerusalem. They would not say the name. They have such utter disdain for Jesus. Just bringing up the name makes people uncomfortable. I don't care how nice you say it. 
candy-coated, you say it, you bring up the name of Jesus, there's immediate resistance to sinners. Is not this he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priest? So even the Jews who don't believe, they recognize that Saul's purpose had changed. That's what they said. He came for the purpose to, to take Christians and go kill them. And now he's preaching Jesus. He has a different purpose. What is going on here? Verse 22. But that doesn't stop Saul. He keeps going. He keeps preaching. And Saul kept increasing in strength. So he even got better as he preached. He was gifted by God, trained by God, getting direct revelation from God. But the more he preached, the better he got. And he was a strengthened in the Lord and the practice of it. That's true if you do evangelism. You get more encouraged when you do it. And it becomes easier to do. So he is strengthened. Uh, and con- he was confounding the Jews, the unbelieving Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. So he was proving to them that Jesus was the Christ. That word there is a unique Greek word in verse 22, proving, proving. You Greek students that I just had recently, sumbibadzon. That is a cool word. Let me say it again. Sumbibadzon, proving, very specific. It means putting together, putting together. What was he doing? For the Jews who studied the Old Testament, who didn't get it and didn't believe in Jesus, he was putting together, putting the pieces in place, a jigsaw puzzle, if you will, of how Jesus is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's what he's doing for them. He's arguing with them. He's debating with them. He's preaching to them. But what is he doing it with? Not human knowledge, not natural revelation, not philosophy, not the moral argument or the cosmological argument or archaeological artifacts that had recently been discovered or human wisdom or Aristotelian thinking, or Greek rhetoric, or even general and natural revelation. He was using the Scripture. That's what he used. Later on, throughout the book of Acts, he's going to say, as was his custom, Paul preached the Scriptures in the synagogue. As was his custom, he showed from the Scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. That's what we do when we preach. Well, Pastor Cliff, there's some people, you can't just go up cold turkey and talk to an unbeliever who's not familiar with the Old Testament uh, about Jesus. Yeah, he can. Because it happens in the book of Acts. Do you know that Paul, wherever he goes from now on, whether he is talking to a Jew, educated in the Old Testament, or he is talking to some pagan cold turkey who has never heard the Bible before, he is saying the same thing. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus died for sin. You need to repent and believe in him. That is clear in Acts chapter 17. At the end of that whole dialogue, when he's talking to pagans, Greek philosophers who didn't have the Old Testament, it says exactly what he was preaching. He was preaching Jesus is the Christ who rose again from the dead. That is our message. That is true preaching. That's what people need to hear. That is the only thing that can change them. Proclaiming Jesus. You go back one chapter... It says, I love this phrase. Here's this Ethiopian guy. He's not Jewish. He fears God. He's not born again. He has a piece of the Old Testament, but he doesn't understand it. Philip helps him out, and it says that Philip preached Jesus to him. That is awesome. Jesus preached Jesus. When Jesus called Saul in verse 15 of chapter 9 in Acts, it says that I want Paul to bear my name. I want Paul to preach of me. I don't want Paul to get sidetracked and talk about things that are non-gospel issues. You don't go to an unbeliever and say, well, 
uh, you need to believe in a literal Genesis 1 through 3 in order to get saved. That's not the gospel. That is not true. That's not what Paul did. And by the way, uh, if you're an unbeliever, you're not probably not going to believe a literal Genesis 1 through 3. I know I didn't. All these difficult, amazing doctrines of the Bible, I didn't believe those till after I got saved. The gospel is the simple message about Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15. That's what they need to hear. Don't get sidetracked. And you know what, Paul? He never gets sidetracked. He even says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17 and following. When I came, I preached the cross. When I came, I preached the cross. I didn't baptize. I preached the cross. And then in Galatians 6, 14, he says, May I boast of nothing else save in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a one-track mind. That's what we preach. We preach Jesus. That's exactly what he did, verse 20. So his purpose had changed. His purpose was to now serve Christ. Oh, by the way, verse 22, people will, Christians, evangelical Christians with evidentialist apologetics will take verse 22 out of context and they'll say, see, it says proving. Paul was proving to unbelievers. He was proving. See, we need to use proofs that aren't in the Bible. We need to use calculus and archaeology and logical reasoning and the teleological argument, all those arguments, even the transcendental argument and the cosmological argument and the ontological argument and the moral argument and ad infinitum argument that are not in the Bible to convince, to prove to unbelievers that God exists. That, and they use this verse. That is not what this verse is saying. I already gave you the word. Sum bibadzon putting together the pieces of the Old Testament so they could see clearly see the picture of Jesus. That's what they need to see. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So let's go on. After the purpose. Well, whenever you preach and live for Christ boldly, you are going to get protest. You are going to get antagonists. It's inevitable. You can't avoid it. If your goal in life as a Christian is to walk around and not offend anybody, you will not be an obedient Christian. As a matter of fact, when Jesus saved Saul, he told him, you know what, Saul? Uh, You're an instrument of mine. You're going to represent me, and your life is going to be marked by suffering. That's what he told him. That is a promise. All who desire to be godly in this life, said Paul and Timothy, will be persecuted. That's just the way it is. Because at some point in giving the gospel to an unbeliever, you're going to have to tell them they're a sinner. They don't like that. And you tell them there's only one way. It's through Jesus. They don't like that. And then you probably have to get around to hell. Because after all, that's what Jesus is saving you from. They don't like that either. That makes them mad. Well, let me say it a little nicer and softer tone. Wait, I'll lower my voice. They still aren't going to like it. One way, repent from sin, be saved from hell. Who do you think you are? You arrogant, narrow-minded, condescending Christian. Often that is the response. So it's not loving. Some people think loving, to be loving is to not offend. I think to be loving is to tell the truth. Really, that's true love. And as far as we know, Saul was obedient. He did it in a godly manner. By the way, he was filled with the Spirit as he was doing this. So he wasn't sinning. He wasn't being arrogant. He wasn't being condescending. He was just being faithful. And there was still resistance. Verses 23 to 25, the protest. Protest for change, that's the enemies of Christ, 23 to 25. So when many days had elapsed, some people think it was three years. That's many days, three years. We know this from Galatians 1, 17 to 21. He may have been 
saved, stayed in Damascus, didn't go back home to Jerusalem or Tarsus immediately. He stayed in Damascus for three years. It could be that's where he got many of these mysteries, these divine revelations that God gave him uniquely that some of the other apostles didn't get. Uh, Paul got all these mysteries that Peter never got. And Peter talks about it in 2 Peter. Peter says, wow, you should, you should believe Paul's epistles. Man, I know they're hard to understand. That guy, he gets complicated sometimes. He's saying stuff. I don't know where he got it because Jesus didn't tell us about it. I'm, this is the McManus, Living McManus translation uh, or interpretation of chapter 3, 2 Timothy. And Peter is saying, Christians, you know, Paul, he's saved. He's a Christian. He's an apostle. Uh, his epistles, believe them. They're the word of God. But yet they are hard. They're difficult. They are confused, confusing even to me and people who are unable uh, at scripture they they twist and distort what paul's saying don't do that and what peter was probably referring to is many of these mysteries that peter had never heard of what's an example of a mystery peter had never heard of from jesus well every time paul says the word mystery like romans 9 through 11 the fate and the future of israel i don't ever see that in the gospels of jesus talking about that that is new information he even calls it a mystery at the end of chapter 11 so Peter's reading through uh, Romans in his cell there, and he's like, fresh from Paul. He's like, wow, nine through this is tough. I wish Paul was here to explain this. Where did he get this information? Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, the mystery of the church, the new man called the mystery that was not revealed, but it was revealed to some of the apostles and some de- details to, to Paul that nobody else got. Second Thessalonians and First Thessalonians, some of that eschatology stuff was called a mystery that Peter probably never was given by Jesus. New stuff complicated stuff and so maybe it was during that three-year period among other times of solace that saul had where he's getting this information uh from the lord jesus christ directly i want to read i'll just read galatians one because it could be at this time during this respite where jesus gave him this information after he gets saved uh paul in his testimony galatians one he says uh god was graciously willing to reveal his son in me so that i might preach him among the gentiles i did not immediately get this after i got saved i did not immediately consult with flesh and blood right when i got saved i didn't go back to jerusalem and tell the apostles hey i got saved i'm a christian now can you tell me everything you learned about jesus when you were with him for three and a half years he didn't do that i did not consult with flesh and blood nor did i go up to jerusalem to those who were apostles before me but i went away to arabia nabatea specific arabia and then returned once more to damascus then three years later so there's a three-year period before he goes to jerusalem for three years then three years later i went up to jerusalem finally so after three years of being saved was the first time he stepped foot in jerusalem and even when he was in jerusalem he didn't get to meet he wanted to meet the apostles but he didn't he only met uh peter and it says in verse 18 uh, the three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become co- acquainted with Cephas or Peter. I stayed with him just 15 days, two weeks. And then he split town in Jerusalem. Do you know why he split town? Because Acts 22 says, while he was in Jerusalem that time with Peter, Jesus appeared to him again and said, Saul, get out of town. It was a warning. You will not be received here. I don't want you dead yet. You have 32 more years of ministry for me. You haven't even written one of your 13 epistles yet. Get out. And he did. He even argued with Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Uh, But I'm saved now. Get out. That's the Living McManus translation again of Acts 22. So go back to Acts chapter 9 again. 
So the protest from his enemies, um, verse, when many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. So these are the, the Jews from the synagogue where he preached, the Hellenists, the same ones or the same type that had Stephen executed. So they got a plan. Let's get rid of him. Let's shut him down. Verse 24, but their plot to kill him became known to Saul. So there was a traitor among them. So maybe one of these Jews got saved, found out about it, had a house near the wall, on the wall, apparently had a house on this huge, massive, thick wall that went around Damascus. Maybe somebody got saved there uh, and it was a hiding place. So the plot became to kill him became known to Saul. Uh, they were also watching the gates of the city by day. So they had this huge, massive wall. You could only get in a limited number of ways into the city of Damascus, maybe two to three gates they had. And the word, it was an all points, points bulletin that went out by the authority, not just the Jews, but even to the civil government, maybe in beyond to the Roman government about this guy, Saul, who needs to be killed and executed or arrested at least. And so the the highest authorities in Damascus who had jurisdiction over Damascus actually put guards at every gate so that he might be arrested as soon as they saw him. We know this from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul gives his testimony at the end. He talks about this incident where the higher-ups sought to arrest him, not just a few Jews in a synagogue who had limited authority. These are political officials. But their plot became known to Saul. Uh, they were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. There's no way. There's no escape. But his disciples took him. See, so he preached for three years in Damascus, and apparently many responded to the gospel. That's a glorious thing. So now he had sympathizers and fellow brothers in the Lord who were with him to watch out for him, to provide for him, to have fellowship for him, and in this case, protect him. His disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening or, he says in 2 Corinthians 11, a window. Through a window that was probably a window to a house that was in the wall that had apparently a window on the other side of the wall. And they put him in a basket, maybe a big fruit basket or a net. Or we don't know what, something big enough. Drew him up there, snuck him out. Took him by night down through an opening in the window, lowering him in a large basket. So you will always have resistance if you preach Christ faithfully. Let's go on to number three. Um, after the purpose for change, serving Christ, the protest that comes with change from the enemies of Christ, there's the proof of change. God changes you, and so as a result, it's going to eke out in proof. Good works. That will be the change. You will talk differently. You will act differently. You'll behave differently. I think of when I got saved. I've told the story before when I was 19 in college as a freshman. I was a pagan. Got saved at college. I made friends when I first got there as a pagan. They were also pagans. We did paganism together. Got saved. Got radically saved. One month later, my good buddy Kevin, the pagan, said, Cliff, wow, you're no fun anymore. What happened to you? And I told him about jesus kevin got saved but what did kevin see he saw the works in my life and that's what is true of saul he's a new creation and he just exudes godliness godly words godly attitudes godly works 
Boldness for Christ. The disciples notice it. They affirm it. They welcome it. They believe it. They help him. They embrace him. They don't fear him. That's the proof. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, so he's there for three years. The disciples uh, welcome him. They help him escape. And then finally he's going to go to Jerusalem after being saved for three years. First time to Jerusalem. Probably never met uh, personally Peter or John on a personal level as a Christian. Maybe he was in the courtroom when John and Peter got arrested as an assistant to Gamaliel. A, a clerk that serves in the court for a younger, as a younger trainee, but never as a, as a Christian. It's the first time. And uh, verse 26, so when Saul came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate. See, he was trying. It was an ongoing. Man, he's doing everything he can to try to get at the disciples. And, and he was trying means uh, he had to keep persisting and persisting. And he's getting shot down. Oh, there's some Christians in that house. They wouldn't let him in. Knock, knock. Who's there? Saul, the Christian, liar. Trying to associate with the disciples, no luck. Why? Because they were all afraid of him. Totally unlike the disciples up there in Damascus. Totally afraid of him. Uh, they knew three years. It's been three years. We know this guy went away for three years to go kill Christians. This guy, when he was here three years ago, he killed my mother. Really? Utter fear. They were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Verse 27, well, the proof eventually from his saved life began to woo believers over. It did on this amazing godly man named Barnabas. We met him in uh, Acts chapter 4. Barnabas got saved early on. He was a godly man. He was a wealthy man. He was from Cyprus. He probably sold property he had in Cyprus. Now he's living in Jerusalem. He took the proceeds from the land that he sold, and he gave it all to the church and to the poor in the church in Jerusalem. Just an incredibly gracious, selfless, giving, godly man, respected by the apostles. His name wasn't Barnabas. That was not his birth name. I think it was Joseph. Good name. But the apostles began to call him Barnabas. Son of encouragement, son of exhortation. This guy goes out of his way to encourage fellow believers. And they gave him a nickname. That's what Barnabas did. Every time we see Barnabas in the book of Acts, he's helping somebody. So somehow Saul was able to make inroads into the heart of Barnabas. Barnabas actually, okay, I'll listen to your story. Wow, that is awesome. I believe he got saved. If God can save Nebuchadnezzar, then God can save you, Saul. I believe you. Changed his life. So Barnabas, the son of encouragement, took hold, <laughs> literally took hold. That's funny. I, maybe Paul was resistant. You know what? I, I've tried, Barnabas. They won't let me in. They're throwing rocks at me. They're yelling at me. They won't believe me. I give up. Literally took Saul. You know what? No, we're going to go meet the. We're going to go meet Peter. Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles, which would have been Peter. Uh, most of the apostles weren't around. At least Peter and maybe James. And they described to Peter and James how Saul had seen Jesus on the road and that Jesus talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus Christ. Now he is a proclaimer of the name of Jesus. Well, Peter and James believed it. They believed they respected Barnabas. They welcomed him in. And then they began to let, get the word out to the fellow. You know what? You don't need to fear Saul anymore. He's, he's been changed. By the grace of God, he has been changed. Welcome him in. He is on our team. He's a bold proclaimer of Jesus Christ now. And so they heeded 
those welcoming words, and they embraced the Apostle Paul as one of their own now. There in Jerusalem, verse 28, and he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem. Uh, That means from house to house among the, the believers now. They were giving him hospitality now. And meanwhile, he's speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. There's that amazing boldness. The same tenacious boldness that he used and wielded to murder Christians at all costs. God has turned that boldness around, that temperament, that personality to use for his good in the furtherance of the king. He is speaking up. Paul is fearing no one. He is fearing. He knows now that he's in Jerusalem, he's in the lion's den because he knows these men personally. If I speak out publicly and boldly, I could be arrested like Peter and John. I could get beat like Peter and John. I could get threatened like the apostles did. I could be executed like Stephen did. That's He knows that. Nevertheless, he is boldly, regularly preaching in Jerusalem publicly the name of Jesus Christ. And inevitably, verse 29, what happened to Stephen? Stephen was going around in the Hellenistic synagogues in Jerusalem in Greek, speaking that Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul, a Greek-speaking man, did the same thing. Went to these same synagogues that had Stephen arrested. He goes into them, and verse 29 says, Paul, or Saul, was talking and arguing, debating. This is hard work. This is arduous work. Arguing with the Hellenistic Jews in those synagogues, uh, but they were attempting to put him to death, just like they did Stephen. Verse 30, but when the brethren learned of it, see, they were attempting to put him to death. I told you, Acts 22, where he said, Jesus came to him and said, Saul, get out of town. Get out. It's only been 15 days. I need you. I'm going to use you. He finally obeyed. He left town and his disciples helped him. Verse 30, but when the brethren, fellow believers, learned that Paul's life was on the line, they surrounded Saul and said, you know what? You've got to get out of here. They're going to kill you. They killed Stephen. They've killed many. They will not relent. We know what's going to happen. You've got to get out. So they helped him. They learned of it. They brought Saul to Caesarea, which was uh, to the west and the coast, a port city there built by Herod the Great, where he could get on a boat, cross the Mediterranean, going north to Cilicia, the country of his hometown, Tarsus, and that's where they sent him to be safe. He ended up at least five years there in obscurity in Tarsus, maybe getting more revelations, preaching the gospel, taking a respite, being used by God, very low key behind the scenes, maybe penning his first epistle close to it anyway. So that was the proof. Paul was a changed man. And then finally, the power, the power of change. The power is in the Holy Spirit that lived in Paul. That same power is accessible to you and me today. Isn't that amazing? We have the power of the Spirit of God. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit of God living in you who gives you that supernatural power. Supernatural power to, first and foremost, probably to resist sin that lives within. That's the hardest thing, I think, to resist or to fight against is your own sin. And we have the Holy Spirit of God to help us. We have power. Jesus said that in Acts chapter 1. I'm going to give you power when the Spirit comes to live with you. The power of change. And it allows us to for courageous living in the blessing of God. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, which while Saul was an unbeliever, they were under duress. They lived in fear. They were scattered about. Things have changed. Now a change has happened. Through the power and the grace of God, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Do you know that it had been about uh, 
three years plus that they'd enjoyed this peace. This, and you know, God does that. There are seasons in life. There are seasons in history. There are seasons in the church. There are seasons in countries. There are seasons in nations where you have the ebb and flow of curse and blessing, fear and freedom. That's all. That's true of history. That's the way God works. You read the book of Judges. That's how it was. You read throughout uh, the rest of the Old Testament that they had a good king in Jerusalem and they had peace and prosperity and blessing. They had a lousy king and everybody was moaning and groaning. And so here is a, a blessed season of blessing for the church. The United States has had seasons of blessing. Most of our history has been a blessing, a season of blessing, actually. Freedom, safety. Who knows how long that will last? It's God's prerogative. The church throughout all Judea and and Galilee, Samaria, they enjoyed peace. Well, one of the main reasons they enjoyed peace is because the main Christian killer, Saul, was now a Christian. How awesome was that? He's on their side now. And being built up. See, Jesus said, I will build the church. I will build the church. I will grow the church. I will continue to grow the church. Uh, not the, not even Hades itself, Satan, sin, nothing, the hateful world. No one is going to stop or impede the growth of Jesus' church until he comes again. And here it is. The church was being built up. The church was being encouraged. The church was growing. The church was blossoming. The church was uh, blooming, growing in depth and in breadth. The church will continue to grow. This is the promise of Jesus. I, I get uh, undone when I hear fellow Christians or reading a book when people start taking... Christians take pot shots at the church. Oh, the church is weak today. Oh, the church is compromised. Oh, the church is this. Oh, the church in America. Oh, the church in America. Oh, the church... I'm thinking, why do you make it sound like the church is dead? Jesus said, I will build my church. The church goes on in continuity in his power. That is guaranteed. That's a promise from him. It will continue to be built up until he returns. It is his precious bride. Don't talk negative about Jesus' girlfriend. It's his bride. His glorious, precious bride. And when you talk nasty about the church, you're talking about yourself. This is his precious bride being built up in fulfillment of the promise, going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church continued to increase. And that's the theme throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And we're going to see how God continues to grow his early church. And for the last 1,900 years, God is faithful and he continues to grow the church all throughout history and even today, right here in Grace Bible Fellowship and in the church universal, all to his praise and all to his glory. With that, let's go ahead and pray and thank the Father and Jesus, the bridegroom of the blessed church. Father, we thank you for this day, the gift once again to worship with the saints, the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit who lives in Christians, who believe the gospel, who know you. Thank you for the resident power we have in the Spirit. Continue to remind us of that great truth so that we will use that power to resist sin in our own life and also be empowered to represent you well in the world. We thank you also for the treasure of your word and how it speaks true history to us. Thank you for being such a gracious and blessed Savior. We give you all the praise and glory in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.